Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director here at Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Joining us, as he does almost every week, is the great Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, good to talk with you. Hey, Brandon. Good to see you, as always. I missed getting to see you in person about a week or yeah. two ago. We, for the very first time in our history, gathered everyone from Word on Fire. I think about 25 people. They all came to Santa Barbara. I had to miss it because I was at home protecting my family from Hurricane, Hurricane Dorian. Yeah. Um, but but tell us about this Word on Fire retreat. It must have been a joy for you to get everybody together for the first time. It was just one of the highlights of the last couple of years for me to see everybody. Because we're all over the country, as you know. I mean, you're across the country and we have folks in New York and Washington, of course, Chicago, Dallas, all over the place. And so to have everybody here was a joy. We had a marvelous picture taken right on the on my back porch here at the house. And uh, I really treasure that. And uh, I, I really felt, you know, a bit uh, of my spiritual fatherhood. Um, priests aren't fathers in the, in the uh, biological order, you know, as you are, but we're priests in the spiritual order. And for me, that's where the generativity of my priesthood, uh, I really sense it, is with the Word on Fire family. And just to see those you know, wonderful, mostly younger people, uh, full of enthusiasm for the gospel, uh, full of life, full of purpose, um, and how smart they are and prayerful they are. We had a, a retreat day. I spoke to them. We had mass. I spoke to them. Father Steve spoke. And um, just a lot of fellowship. And uh, it was a wonderful experience. We missed you, though, of course, Brandon. That was Everyone did. And it was just too bad, that darn hurricane, huh? You reflected afterward on the mysterious workings of Providence and how it gathered all of these various people from yeah. all across North America to be a part of this Word on Fire movement. Uh, say, say a little something about that. I'm always amazed at it. You know, it's one of those theological ideas that can sound very abstract, but I think that's really where the rubber meets the road when it comes to theology, meaning life. Because now you see that God is in all things, Thomas says, by essence, presence, and power. But see, God is never present impersonally. God's always present with mind and will and purpose, right? And so God's omnipresence looks like providence. It looks like God's always about something. He's He's affecting something, making something happen. And so I see it with Word on Fire in just a thousand different ways of how certain people have come to us and then connections made and relationships grown and all these wonderful things. It's the Lord, you know, doing his work, planning something in my mind and heart a long time ago when I was just, you know, on my own thinking, well, maybe we should do something more with, uh, you know, with, we didn't call it social media in those days. We just called it, I don't know what, radio and TV, uh, but then how it's grown. And that's, um, I think, a sign of God's providence. Well, today we're going to talk about the perennial interesting topic of free will. Uh, people have been discussing it, of course, for centuries, but just this week in The Atlantic, there was a very interesting article titled, A Famous Argument Against Free Will Has Been Debunked. Now, I won't get into all the details, but it's referencing this famous experiment by a neuroscientist or physiologist named Benjamin Labette in the 1980s, and essentially he wired people up to an EEG machine and he said, whenever you feel like it, lift your finger. Whenever you feel like it, lift your finger and note the time at which you lifted your finger. And what he found through this experimentation is that the neurons in these subjects' brains started firing several milliseconds before they sensed that they wanted to lift their finger. So the conclusion of Labette and many others was that 
this debunks the idea of free will because it means people's brains are telling them subconsciously to do something even before they choose to do it. But what this Atlantic article found was that the experiment had many flaws, but recently in 2012, uh, another group of researchers created other experiments that seemed to undermine the Labette thesis. Basically, they found that those firing neurons in the brain before the decision was made wasn't actually a subconscious decision, but it was sort of the brain assessing the different possibilities of maybe whether I should lift my finger, I don't know, maybe I should. And so that was the neural activity. So in other words, they, they said, this is not a good argument against free will. Now, again, I, I don't want to spend this whole episode in the science of it. Maybe we can range more into the philosophical realm, but let's start with just the basic debate over free will versus determinism as it's known. Uh, this isn't a new debate, is it? Oh, gosh, no. It's as old as the hills. And actually, the last thing you said there, Brandon, because I'm no expert on, on the details of those scientific experiments, but the last thing you said struck me as very intriguing because when you said the brain kind of assessing you know, possibilities, the term that Thomas Aquinas uses right, for free will is liberum arbitrium. And it's very interesting because arbitrium means judgment, right? So what he's really saying is free judgment. See, in Aquinas, the will in all its modalities is a function of the mind. So when the mind knows things, it knows them as, as um, in this place or in this modality or as interesting. But then the second the mind knows something as good, it wills it. <laughs> That's what will means. Will means to seek the good, right? So it's a function of the mind. It's, an, it's a modality of the mind. When the mind knows the good, qua good, will emerges. So, in a similar way, we talk about free will. Well, what is that? In a way, it's a function of mind. Librum arbitrium, free judgment. Our experience is, like, for example, I'm sitting in this chair now, right? Now, to a large degree, that's a function of gravity. I, I'm, I'm here because gravity is, is holding me down. On the other hand, a few minutes ago, I was in the room across the hall, right? And I realized now I can make a, a judgment. I can stay here. I could go downstairs. I could say, you know, the heck with Brandon and the show. I don't want to do it today. Or I could come in here and, and do the show. So though gravity is holding me to this chair, that's certainly true. And I have no control over that in a way. But I also know by a kind of immediate introspection that there was a librium, librium arbitrium involved. There was a free judgment. There was an assessing of possibilities. And I chose this one. No, I'm going to go in that room. I'm going to sit down and do this show with Brandon. Um, that's the root of what we call free will in Thomas Aquinas. It's the movement of the mind to sort through a number of possibilities, realizing full well, I, I could do any one of them. You know, uh, I could have... Uh, a pizza, I could have a hamburger. I, I realize that I have those two possibilities and I determine one or the other. So that move of the brain kind of assessing if that's what in fact it's doing, I don't know enough about the physiology, but if that's what it's doing, that would be totally congruent with Thomas Aquinas' view of how Librum Arbitrium works. I think a lot of times in this discussion, there's not enough nuance between yeah. those two options of free will and determinism. It's like either yeah. everything is completely determined and people yeah. have no decision about their actions, or they make completely unconditioned, free, unconstrained decisions without any influence from anything else. 
Right. And you know, something that's helpful here, I think, is the Protestant theologian Paul Tillich, whom I studied carefully many years ago. But Tillich talks about these ontological polarities. Um, and one of them is what he calls freedom and destiny. Now, what he means there, freedom is this capacity we've just been describing, that I can determine the course of my life. It's I, I, I set the tone. There's something uh, spontaneous. There's something self-determinative about it, unpredictable, right? I'm free. On the other hand, Tillich says, freedom is never absolute. Like I'm just, I just for no reason whatsoever make these wild decisions. No, destiny, he says, is what's given to freedom. It's what conditions freedom. That upon which freedom stands, that toward which freedom is lured, right? All that belongs to what he calls destiny. And the two of them exist as an ontological polarity. Now, I'll give you an example to make that more concrete. Did I freely choose to be a priest? Yeah. In fact, that's essential to ordination, that you have to acknowledge before the church that you were standing here freely. If I were seeking laicization, you know, which means to be dispensed totally from my priesthood, I'd have to show, you know, I, I was being coerced. I, I didn't really want this. Someone held a gun to my head or someone was threatening me, right? Well, I, I can't do that. I, I know that I freely chose after long deliberation to be a priest. Okay. But was destiny uninvolved in that decision? Well, of course not. Uh, the fact that I was born of these two good and, and pious Catholic parents, that I went to Catholic school, that I was exposed to St. Thomas Aquinas when I was in high school, that I had this experience, that experience, language, education, religion, all of it was given to me. And it did, to a very large degree, condition my freedom. It it directed my freedom. And I think that's an important distinction, that we shouldn't just do determinism versus freedom. There, there's always a, a play in all of us between those two things, right? Um, they're in an ontological polarity. One, one kind of pressing against the other, you might say, Think of a teenager. Uh, what's going on in a teenager psychology is largely freedom being realized and freedom asserting itself against destiny, if that makes sense. Think like, Brandon, your kids are all, well, how old is your oldest? Uh, ten. Isaiah's about 10. ten. So it's coming. But, you know, little kids, they largely live in a world of destiny. Things are given to them, right? Including language, which is hugely important in our, in our development. Language, family, culture, religion, uh, order, law. Kids, kids live in a very restricted space. We think, oh, kids live in this world of freedom. Not really. They live in the opposite. What happens is when they become teenagers, inevitably, freedom begins to assert itself. And then you've got these famous struggles of freedom against destiny, right? And then, you know, the key to life is finding a happy equilibrium of the two things and, and now welcome to maturity for most people. Okay. The point is, it's not a sharp either or. It's this really subtle both and, uh, the play of freedom and destiny. There's been a lot of emphasis on determinism today. I'm thinking of several best-selling books that have tried to make the case that at, at root were not free, that were determined. Sam Harris, one of the famous four horsemen of the new atheism, wrote a New York yeah. best New York Times bestselling book titled Free Will, 
the cover of it had a man attached to puppet strings. You know, the idea that someone's just manipulating all of his movements. Sean Carroll is another famous atheist cosmologist who argues that we don't have free will. A lot of them take the view that if we, if we look down at the atomic level, at the level of atoms, that if you knew the position of every atom in the entire universe at moment T, yeah. and you also accounted for all of the laws of nature, then at T equals one, one second later, you could determine the position of every single atom in the universe. Therefore, right. we're not free. We're determined. What do you make of that sort of argument? Well, first of all, it's part of that enlightenment fantasy, at least one strand of the enlightenment. And go back to people like Newton, and there are many, many disciples of, of Newton. That was the fantasy was, gosh, given these laws and given what we know about motion, and as you say, if I can determine the position and speed of any object in the universe, I'll tell you in a million years, if I knew everything that could possibly influence it, right? I could tell you in a million years exactly where that thing's going to be. So that was part of the I would say kind of arrogant fantasy of the Enlightenment of, of a totalizing knowledge. Well, a couple problems. One is that the psychological and spiritual dimension doesn't correspond to the physical that readily. And so I can simply transfer what I know about the physical space to another space. That's one issue. But the second one, Brandon, you and I have talked about this, is it's actually pretty bad science given what all the quantum theorists are telling us about these really, really fundamental levels of reality at the quantum level, you don't have causal determinism. You don't have, oh, if I know this, I'm going to know that. Things like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle kick in and things like quantum indeterminacy kick in. Now, again, I'm saying, I'm speaking as though I know a lot about this. I, I'm a very, uh, I'm a very amateur's knowledge of it. But as I listen to the scientists, they tell me that the Enlightenment fantasy of a totalizing uh, understanding of the cosmos is just that. It's a fantasy. And in fact, something like free process. I'm using John Polkinghorne's term there. Remember John Polkinghorne, who does know a lot about this Cambridge particle physicist and Anglican priest, but who talks about the free process of the universe. And at the quantum level, determinacy seems to be like a, that's a fantasy. That's an imposition from the 18th century. And in fact, the universe is much stranger and much, if you want, freer than we imagined. So if you want to play the science card, I'd go that way and say, well, heck, if if nature has that kind of indeterminacy, why wouldn't the psyche or the spirit, too, have a similar you know, indeterminacy? I find really interesting this juxtaposition of a lot of scientists and philosophers strenuously arguing for determinism. When in the general culture, there's this hyper emphasis on self-invention yeah. and uh, the autonomous yeah. self, and I have to freely come up with who I am. Nobody can constrain me or tell me what to do. These things seem to be at odds with each other, yeah. yet they're both being vigorously argued. Don't you think, though, Brandon, with the atheist, has a lot to do with God and with, with religion, and they, they're tying free will correctly very much to uh, moral responsibility and to... Um, a universe in which God, a free agent, exists and is interacting with other free agents. Now, let me bring another dimension to this thing. So we talked about 18th century science and that sort of fantasy of a totalizing uh, worldview. Another, to me, interesting and though counterintuitive influence. Go back now to the Reformation, the writings of Martin Luther, and the famous text from 15, I think, 25, called On the Bondage of the Will, right? 
So here's Luther arguing against Erasmus, who was the defender of the freedom of the will. And Erasmus is coming out of the medieval tradition, etc. But Luther said, no, no, there isn't a free will. The will is is held uh, slave, in slavery. And at one point in that text, he says, look, the will is not free. It's, either, it's written either by God or by the devil, period. You know, and that's what it comes down to. Now, from that text, especially of Luther, I think there's a very short step to Calvin's double predestination, where you also find a de facto elimination of, of freedom. It's like from the beginning, where you're either ridden by God or by the devil, you're, you're predestined to damnation or salvation, double predestination. I think in a strange way, you find in the new atheists a revival of, of that view of, of the bondage of the will. I stand against both 18th century scientific determinism and against 16th century Reformation uh, predestinationism in favor of Librum Arbitrium. So I, I think that's a very interesting uh, connection in the history of ideas, how things make their way. So we Catholics wouldn't stand with that hyperemphasis on sovereignty and providence that reduces or, or eviscerates our free will. But how do we see the interplay between free will and providence? If God is in control of all of reality, how can we then be free? Yeah, and that's, a, of course, classic question. And I, again, rely on Thomas Aquinas and his disciples. It, it, there's, a, there's a bit of Tillich in this, too, with the freedom destiny idea. Here's what I mean. Freedom, Librum Arbitrium, as we said, is not sheer arbitrariness. Just boom, for no reason whatsoever, I'm going to go here or there. No, no. Freedom is always conditioned, it stands on something, and I'd say most importantly, it's lured by something, right? So every act of the will, remember what Thomas said, that the will emerges the minute the good is understood qua good, right? So it's always something good outside the will that begins to lure it and draw it. That fact doesn't make the will any less free. In fact, it enhances and grounds its freedom. Now, let's cut right to the chase, the famous question of divine foreknowledge, predestination, human freedom. And here's a dumb example, but it helps me. Uh, anyone that knows me knows that one of my great heroes is Bob Dylan, right? And I've, I've seen Bob Dylan in concert, I don't know, 12 times in my life. What if you told me that Bob Dylan was going to be giving a concert with his band in my living room, that, that you've arranged it, that Bob Dylan and his band would be in my living room tomorrow night at eight o'clock. How sure are you that I'm going to be in the living room at eight o'clock? I, I mean, you're almost, I'd say 99.9% .9 sure that I'm going to be there because you know that about me. You know how much I like Bob Dylan. And you've now cleared the way. You've eliminated almost every possible thing that would prevent me from coming. It's in my living room, in my house, right? And let's say you know furthermore that I'm definitely in town, I'm, et cetera. I'm not sick. <laughs> so if you know all those things and you've arranged to have Bob Dylan in my uh, living room, pff, heck, you're 99.9% .9 sure I'm going to be there. Would you therefore say, oh, he didn't come freely? He didn't come freely to hear Bob. No, no, on the contrary. I, it's one of the free. Yes, yes. I, I, I choose to go see Bob Dylan. But you've paved the way. You've drawn my freedom so clearly. 
Okay. Now, the, the reason it's a perhaps illuminating example is it's so extreme. Now, imagine God. You you know you know about me that that, that I like Bob Dylan, and maybe to a degree you're able to manipulate uh, and and affect the circumstances, right? But now you're God, who knows everything about everything, who knows every single love and desire and longing of mine, who can furthermore arrange the world in such a way as to smooth the path that God could definitively make things happen without violating our freedom. Yeah, absolutely. Once we understand how the good lures our freedom, I think that's the best way to get at this issue of how to reconcile God's providence, which is which is determining in a way with our freedom. I think that's the Thomist way to handle it. Let's turn the tables for a minute and suppose that determinism was true. Suppose that we didn't have free will. What would be the implications of that? We're animals then. And Thomas makes that distinction, you know, like a rock. So like, here's this bottle of water. I don't know if you can see it. Uh, there it is. It's sitting on the table. It's not choosing anything. It's just there. It's the nature of a, of a thing this weight to be held down by gravity. Or you take an animal. Thomas is just purely determined by, by instinct. Animals not choosing, it's just dumbly following instinct. We would sink to the level of clever animals. We'd be rather sophisticated animals. We'd have this thing, would, you know, like I'm being held by gravity to this chair, and I'd have dumb animal instincts, but I would not have the spiritual power that we recognize as attendant upon intellect and will. Furthermore, Aquinas says, we would do away with the entire realm of moral approbation, moral blame, uh, moral encouragement, moral reward and punishment. I mean, all that would just go by, you don't morally blame an animal, right? Even an animal does a say, bad dog, but you don't really mean bad dog, like, like morally bad dog. You don't say, boy, you deserve to be uh, punished uh, morally. Uh, I'd never say bad bottle of water, you know, for, for falling down on me. Well, of course not. So all of that would fall away if liberum arbitrium disappears. I find that among many of my determinist friends, when, when you bring up this example of moral praise and moral blame, like a court case where a really egregious criminal is brought to trial and his plea is that, well, you know, I, I was just forced to do it because yeah. of my inner chemical reactions, the neurons in my brain, that even the most hardened determinist will not be thoroughly consistent enough to say, Okay, he's right. You know whether we need to lock him up or not. In any case, he's not to blame, and we shouldn't blame he's not him. Not guilty, right? Yeah, no one believes it. It's a game. I honestly, Brandon, I think a lot of the stuff is a game. No one really believes that, and that's why the old Aristotle thing: don't um, listen to what people say. Watch what people do. Watch how people behave, and they behave. And I mean, not just our moral behavior, but the way we assess the world. Watch our our actual behaviors. They depend at every moment on something like free will and moral um, uh, blame or praise, you know? So I think that's, that's silly. Okay. Let, it's, there's so much more to say. You, you always say this. Oh, we're barely scratching the surface. We could yeah, do a whole course are, on this. Right. Um, yeah. But let's, let's close with this. If you had, say, a minute to make the case for free will, what would you say? I would say Libra Arbitrium, that everyone knows that we have something like real judgment when it comes to our actions that we are 
uh, yes, destiny plays a role and yes, we're being lured and so on. But we can, we can know through introspection that I had a range of options and they were all, you know, valid possible options and that I chose one over the other. That's given, I would say, an immediate introspection. But the fact of Librum Arbitrium, which is a function of the mind, are there, in fact, a range of judgments that, that appear before you, possibilities? Then you have what the great tradition calls free will. That's my one-liner argument, I suppose. I'll add to that that if you're interested in the scientific discussion about free will and determinism, there's a really great book called Free, Why Science Hasn't Disproved Free Will. It was published by Oxford University Press recently uh, by a professor named Alfred Mealy, M-E-L-E. So it's titled Free. That gets into all the nitty-gritty details about these experiments and what they show and, and what they don't show. Okay, it's time now for one of our questions from our listeners. Today, we have a question from Matt. He's in Brooklyn, and he's asking about the sin of pride and what we do and don't mean by it. Here's his question. Hi, Bishop. This is Matt from Brooklyn. I have a question about pride. It is one of the seven deadly sins, but it's also one of Aristotle's virtues. So can you square that circle for me? Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's just based on an equivocation. So what Thomas means by pride or superbia, you know, in the great spiritual tradition is a uh, turning the ego into God. It's, it's, it's uh, the ultimate incurvatus in se, right? That I've, I've turned to my own ego as the central preoccupation of my life. What Aristotle means by the term is what Thomas would translate as magnanimitas, magnanimity, being a person of great soul. So Aquinas, following Aristotle, will say the magnanimous person wants to act in such a way that he or she will receive highest praise. Now, again, that doesn't mean I'm, I'm you know, caught up in egotism. It means I want to live in such a way that I should deserve from the best people highest praise for my moral excellence. Now, think for a second. Someone like Maximilian Kolbe, um, giving his life, right, for someone he barely knew at, at Auschwitz, this, this marvelously heroic act, which is a supremely humble act from a spiritual standpoint. But could you also say it was a magnanimous act? Yeah, I think so. If, if somewhere in his soul he said, I, I want to do something which is deserving of the highest moral praise from the best people, yeah, do it do it. That's what Aristotle, I think, means by, by magnanimity. So it wouldn't be pride in the theological sense. We thank you for listening to this episode of the Word on Fire show. If you want more high-level discussion about interesting scientific and philosophical topics like this one, I encourage you to join the Word on Fire Institute. That's why it exists. I think, Bishop, what are we up to now? Over 7,000 members, something yeah, like that? I think we're... I think we're I forget, I shouldn't say, but certainly over 7,000. Se several thousand people, high-level professors from all over the world. Uh, when you sign up today, you not only get access to all of the courses in the Institute, the community, you also get access to the Word on Fire digital platform, which includes all of Bishop Aaron's films, including the latest one on Fulton Sheen and Flannery O'Connor. And you get the first issue of our Evangelization and Culture Journal. It's one of the most beautiful, high-level journals out there in the Catholic world. So sign up today. You can find it 
at wordonfire.institute. Also, if you'd like to support this show and help this podcast reach more people, join us as a patron. You can do that at wordonfireshow.com slash patron. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show. Thank you.